And aren't you glad that out of all the names of all the scientists and all the names of all the politicians and all the names of all the journalists and all the names of all the doctors and all the names of all the authors and all the names of all the bloggers, out of all those names, aren't you glad that the name we rely on is the name of Jesus? Like we just sang. That name, that name of Jesus, who is entirely true, entirely righteous and just, entirely unselfish, fully compassionate, entirely alive and real and at work. And as people who call on the name of Jesus, we ought to be full of peace, full of confidence, but I have a confession to make. And I'm speaking only for myself here. I'm sure none of you wrestle with this, but it seems to me that right now, these last few months, it is more challenging to know who to trust, who to listen to, than any other time that I can remember. I mean, you hear the COVID numbers are spiking, and then you hear the reporting way too high. Then you hear, we've got to flatten the curve. Then you hear, well, no, we've got to get to herd immunity. You hear the economy is going to make a V-shaped bounce back. And then you hear people say, no, the economy is going to be a long U. You hear we've got medicine that can perhaps treat this virus, and then you hear it won't work. You hear you got to wear a mask, and then you hear, no, we're not going to wear a mask. In fact, it's interesting, one of the churches we know of in another state that has begun working through the process of gathering again on Sunday mornings in their building issued their sort of guidelines or requirements for regathering on Facebook, and they asked everyone who came to wear a mask while they are in the auditorium, and it set ablaze this firestorm in the comment section in their own congregation about people saying, no, we're not going to do that. And why, why can't you do that to help somebody else? Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then down at the bottom of the comment section, a guy chimed in. He said, I used to be a Christian, but now I'm an atheist. And this is why I don't believe in God anymore. Because if you people can't even trust your own spiritual leadership, why should I trust the God you claim to follow? Even in your own watch party. I know we've got more than 50 watch parties gathered around this community in Gwinnett County. and Got folks up in the Lanier area with Grace Lanier and others tuning in. Maybe even in your own watch party, you have a diversity of viewpoints. Maybe if you really got down to brass tacks, you would have some significant disagreements with each other on some issues. Maybe the reason you're not in a watch party is for that very reason. And all of this is deeply disorienting. I find myself regular, regularly asking, like, what is happening how long is this going to last? Who do we need to listen to? What should we do? Where are we? And the threat is that in the midst of all that kind of disorientation, everything in our lives would grind to a halt. That the dreams God has for his people in these days 
wouldn't necessarily be derailed. They would just come to a stop. Stop moving forward. Now I'm wondering, I'm curious this morning, do you know that there is a significant amount of the Bible that speaks directly to people dealing with these very kind of questions? There is a huge amount of the scripture that is written to God's people dealing with precisely these kinds of issues. Because these are the questions, these are the challenges that face God's people in exile. That's where we are in our Bibles, Jeremiah 29. You can turn there if you have your Bible. But what Jeremiah has been prophesying up to this point, that God's people are headed to exile is now becoming a reality. And I want to turn back the clock to 2013 when I got some of our Grace kids to help me explain some of the situation of exile. So why don't you tune in and watch this? We are in that chapter of the exile. It's a hard chapter. We've talked about how the king's kept getting worse and worse in Israel. And in 722 BC, they were just totally wiped off the map. The southern kingdom, Judah, lasted about 120 years longer, uh, but their kings were rotten also. And it brings us right up to the brink of our story today, the situation that kind of sets the stage for the passage we'll be reading is actually the destruction of Jerusalem. So uh, I need like four or five kids who would be willing to represent Babylon. So let's take orange, perfect. Oh, Gray, you're so earnest. You got to come up. And uh, yeah, striped shirt and checkered shirt, come on. And you two ladies, come on up. You guys would be the, the fearsome armies of Babylon. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, sure. Sure, come on up. A few of you guys, that's perfect. That's wonderful. Very eager. Come on over here, fellas. And, and ladies, ladies and gents, come on over here. And this, this is a bucket, and it's gonna, it says Babylon on it. You see that? Babylon. Okay, so you guys are going to be kind of over here in Babylon. And I don't know if you noticed. Here, you go ahead and just fearsome armies in rank, shoulder to shoulder. It's good. Two, two rows. Yeah, it's great. Okay. This is why Babylon was the terror of the ancient world. It's because they're sending out soldiers like this. And over here... We actually have Jerusalem set up. You're going to have to use a little bit of imagination. Uh, the, the Israelites did not wear green fatigues, and they didn't carry World War II machine guns. But these are just regular run-of-the-mill army men. But you guys can imagine, right, that this is the city of Jerusalem, okay? And you're over there in Babylon, and you are in the mighty and powerful empire, okay? Now, here's what happens. You guys pretty much conquer this entire stage, if it was the ancient world. So you're all kind of running this, and you're making the king over here pay you some taxes, pay you lots of money, actually, so that you don't wipe them off the map. And then, one day, the king here decides, Jehoiakim is his name, he decides he doesn't want to pay you guys. So how does that make you feel? Mad. And he says, hey, we're not going to pay you anymore. We're actually going to do our own thing, and we're going to be totally okay with it. 
So what do you think you would do if you were a mighty and powerful army and you have a little kingdom, a little city over here, Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah, all sort of against you? What would you do? Well, actually, the first thing you would do is not destroy it. You would grab your bucket. So one of you guys grab a bucket. And you'd come over here with your armies. And the first round in 597 B.C., the first thing you'd do was just take the very best leaders from the city of Jerusalem and from Judah. So everybody grab a handful, a couple of the army men, not all of them, but a few of them. That's good. You don't want to destroy the city yet, though. Okay, just a handful of them. There you go. That's... That's good. So you take most of the leaders off and throw them in your bucket. Good. That's great. Perfect. That, that's about right for the, first, for the first round there. Okay. That's enough. That's, that's enough. You're okay. <laughs> All right. Throw them in, their, in the bucket right there. And then you go back to Babylon. Just like that. So that was the first round of exile. They came in with their big armies, and they carried off a bunch of the best leaders. So if you read the book of Daniel... Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, all these guys probably would have been carried off in that first pickings of the best leaders, okay? But these guys didn't really learn their lesson because about 10 or 11 years later, do you know what they did again? They said, you know what, we're going to stop paying you again because they started paying you. And once you came, you kind of threatened, you took away all the best leaders, 10,000 of all the best leaders. They started paying you again. But then about a, a 10, 11 years later, King Zedekiah decides, ah, I'm just gonna, not going to pay anymore. Now, this is like strike two. How do you feel about that? Very mad. Very mad. Okay, so here's what happened. You come over and you surround the city. It's actually a siege. It's good. Excellent. So, so armies of Babylon, you're surrounding the city. You don't attack it yet, you're just outside of it. And you don't let any food or water come in or out of the city for two whole years. Yeah, we're going to stand here for two years. That's right. And it was bad. It was a bad siege. I mean, people inside, because they couldn't get any food or couldn't get any water, they were miserable. And they were terrified of the Babylonians. And so they decided that they were going to try to escape. Some of them tried to escape. One of the kings went out to a sidewall. That didn't work very well. And it made the armies extremely mad. And here's what the armies did. I mean, this is the city of Jerusalem. You see the temple right here, nice and gold, with the two great pillars out front that Solomon had put there. And here's the city. And, and the armies of Babylon absolutely destroy Jerusalem. I mean, they knock the walls down. <laughs> and the handful of survivors they picked up and they carried off. Oh, that guy fell by the wayside. And they carried off those, those survivors back to Babylon after they had destroyed everything. So armies, you head back to Babylon. No, that's right. They didn't take everybody. In the Bible, it says that there were a handful of people who were still in Jerusalem, but they were the poorest of the poor. And Jeremiah, the way he describes it, he says, after this happened, the place where Jerusalem used to be became a, a, a land where the jackals would run freely. The, the coyotes, they would, the wild dogs would walk through because it was so empty and absolutely devastated. Okay, guys, thanks so much. Good job. Let's leave, let's leave the exiles here in Babylon. Thank our armies. Very good.
very good. You devastated Jerusalem. So it is sort of a strange moment to think about you watching me watching me. Seven or eight years ago, I just, I, I watched myself back then and I had so much energy and hair. No kids of my own. Man. Anyway, so that's the setup for Jeremiah chapter 29. And I even found the exact same bucket from all those years ago, my Babylon bucket. Now, it's done a few more house projects since that time. But I want you to hold that picture in your mind. These people who have been carried away from their hometown, carried away from Jerusalem, and are now living in a foreign empire, a foreign city where the name of God is not known, the laws of God are not followed, they're in the bucket of Babylon. And by Jeremiah 29, the things have really gone poorly. Now, in our own series, these last weeks, we've been looking at the calling of God and how the calling of God works out and ignites and awakens people in the midst of really challenging circumstances. So several weeks ago, we started the series off, Jeremiah chapter 1, and saw God calling Jeremiah and reminding Jeremiah that he has a unique destiny, more unique than Jeremiah realizes or is even willing to admit. In the same way, each of us is more unique than we realize. Then we talked from Jeremiah chapter 4, and Rhodes preached that dynamite sermon about how discovering and living into the uniqueness that God has wired into each one of us usually requires peeling back the layers of some yucky stuff. And that there's breakthrough, but it comes by way of breakdown. Then last week we saw Jeremiah really wrestling with his calling because of the public humiliation rejection that he constantly faced. And the only way that he can continue on is by remaining in close and personal and honest and rugged conversation with God. That's the place for Jeremiah where he gains the courage to name his calling, to name his convictions, and then to keep walking in them. And now we come to Jeremiah 29. And Jeremiah 29, the bulk of it, is actually the text of a letter that Jeremiah sent to the first wave of exiles in that bucket of Babylon. And That situation was so difficult because those exiles, remember at this point, it was just the first wave. Jerusalem had not been totally devastated even though the writing was on the wall. That first wave, they're wondering what's happening. How long is this going to last? Who do we listen to? What should we do? Where are we? And remember the scripture tells us that these are the leaders, the politicians, the craftsmen, the businessmen, 
the best of the best who have been hand-picked to be taken off into exile to strengthen the Babylonian agenda. And so for them, being in the bucket of Babylon is particularly galling for anybody being in the bucket. And I don't even think that's a phrase. I mean, we say down in the dumps, we say like in the doghouse, but I don't think anybody ever says like in the bucket. How are you doing? Well, I'm really in the bucket. But, but for whatever reason, I like buckets and, you know, bucket of Babylon kind of goes together. You know, those bees play off of each other. But these guys, they're in the bucket of Babylon. They're in exile. And they're asking all the questions. Who are we? Where are we? What do we do? How long is it going to last? So Jeremiah sends them a letter. You can only imagine they were excited to hear from Jeremiah, or perhaps not, since Jeremiah hadn't had so many hopeful things to say. So they open up that letter, and this is the text of Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Kind of a weighty salutation. It's not like a, hey, what's up? Or how's the food in Babylon? This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 5, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. I'm sure you can recite it from memory at home. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Verse 12, then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart and I will be found by you declares the Lord. I'll bring you back from captivity. I'll gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Now imagine, you are one of the people in that bucket in Babylon and you read this letter. What does this do to you? How do you respond? When Jeremiah says, hey, get married, have kids, Help your kids get married so they have kids. Are you there doing the math going, wait, 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 so you want me to become a grandparent here? And then later on when Jeremiah says 70 years, surely those hearing the words of this letter would have been like, what? That is a long time. 
So what do we do? What is Jeremiah's word to the exiles in Babylon speak to us in our own situations when we feel displaced, out of sorts, or in the bucket? And the first thing that Jeremiah tells them is face the bucket. You are in exile. Do not live in denial. You're going to be there for a while. <laughs> it was really not intentional rhyming. It just sort of happened. But this is not what they want to hear. They want to come home. They do not want to face the reality that they are in the bucket of Babylon and will remain there for a good long while. Three generations. Really. These are the words in the letter. God says, don't let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. There's pressure among the people. And the prophets and the leaders feel that pressure. And so they come to the people and say, it's going to be over fast. We're going to go home soon. Let me give you the word of the Lord. It's all going to be okay fast. And God says, that's a lie. That's a fantasy. And, and when we want something to happen that actually denies reality, that, that's not how God works. That's not a, a dream from God. That's, that's actually a fantasy. That's escapism. I'll, I'll tell you about um, the sort of fantasy escapism thing that Amy and I have kicked back and forth these last few months. Motorhomes. We've been on Craigslist. We've been on Facebook Marketplace. We've been poking around the classified listings because for whatever reason, being at home with our three small children nonstop for multiple months has made us think, you know what would be even better? Being in a much smaller home for more concentrated time with not enough beds with our three small children driving around the country. Now, it's wonderful to think about how it could be to make all these memories, load up our family, drive around. You know the new phrase, people saying, well, if it's work from home and that works, why not work from anywhere? In fact, there's kind of a run on the motorhome market right now. Lots of people are buying them because they can just sign in and talk to their job or their business while they're looking at Mount Rushmore. But for us, it's a fantasy in so many ways. It doesn't really look at the reality of our lives. It's just escapism. And it's fun. It's really fun. But if we let that become the whole focus of our direction right now, we'd get stuck because we're not facing the reality of what we're living in. And so there's this model, this phrase comes out of the Jim Collins book, Good to Great, called the Stockdale Paradox. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with it, but Jim Stockdale was an admiral. He was actually the highest ranking naval officer in Vietnam to get captured and kept in military internment camp there. They called it the Hanoi Hilton. And uh, he was there for a very long time, years, persevered through torture, survived, and after his release, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. So Collins, when he was researching for his book, 
asked Stockdale, how did you make it through such devastating circumstances? This is a picture of Jim Stockdale when he finally got to come home and see his family. And Stockdale replied that part of what kept him alive was that he never gave up believing that in the end, he and his comrades would prevail and that this would be the defining moment of his life. So then Collins asked the follow-up question, who didn't make it, who didn't survive? And Stockdale said, the optimists. Collins was confused. He said, what do you mean the optimists didn't survive? I thought you just said that the way you survived was by having a deep belief that in the end we would win. Stockdale said, I did. But don't ever confuse a deep belief that you will win with naive optimism. The optimists at the Hanoi Hilton, he said, thought that we would be out by Christmas and then Christmas would come and go and no release. And then they would say, we're gonna be out by Easter and Easter would come and go with no release. Eventually the optimists gave up in despair and they died of a broken heart. And Stockdale, he finished by telling Collins, you have to be able to look at the brutal facts while having a deep belief that in the end you will win. Of course, in Collins' book, he observes this kind of ability to face the brutal facts while also holding fast to hope and confidence as a characteristic of really great companies. But I would say even beyond that, it's something we see time and again demonstrated in the scriptures. This is how the people of God live. We face the bucket. We're in exile. We're here. This is hard. And yet we're confident, not naively optimistic, we're confident that the God we serve has an outcome in which we will emerge victorious. But then the second thing we see here with with Jeremiah's words, his letter to the exiles, is that Jeremiah says, don't don't just acknowledge that you're in the bucket, but then take some steps to beautify the bucket. Make it better. He says, build homes, settle down there, plant some gardens, eat some meals, get married, multiply, don't decrease. And here, Jeremiah is giving them very practical plans. These simple words, build, live, plant, eat, marry, multiply. These aren't the the high altitude, amazing, like God dreams of everything we're going to become. These are the nuts and bolts, day-to-day, practical guide to following God well when you're in the bucket. Make some plans to move forward. And then Jeremiah, as he's talking about this, he says, seek also the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. As you are making your plans to build, live, plant, eat, marry, multiply, it's not all about you. Seek the good of the city around you. It'd be very easy when you find yourself in the bucket to hunker down Zero in on survival, 
and turn inward? Jeremiah says, no. Actually, God, part of the reason that God has carried you to this place is that you might seek the good of that place. Demonstrate the way of God in that place. And when you do it, the city will prosper. And when the city prospers, you prosper. Don't just focus on yourself. Look to beautify the bucket. Now, I remember, it's about 11 years ago now, saw an interesting example of this sort of thing where people didn't really step into what Jeremiah is calling the exiles to do. If you know your Western African history, you might remember there was a country, it's still kind of a disputed territory, called Western Sahara, and it was administered by the Spanish up until about 1975. And the Spanish pulled out, and when they pulled out, the Moroccan government said, we want to claim that land. And so south of Morocco, they invaded. And the people who lived there, the Sahrawi people, many of them fled out into the desert in Algeria. And once they fled, the Moroccans built a thousand mile long earthen wall filled with more than a million landmines. So now all these people are not in their own land, separated from their own land, in the middle of the Sahara, exile. And so it became a refugee camp. The Sahrawi people, there are five major camps there, and it's a fascinating story because they've been there now for almost 50 years. And they still they have no running water, they don't have wells. And if you look at the camps, they have an amazing culture. They have these tea ceremonies. Uh, this is one of our hosts when we stayed there out in the desert in his tent. And they would pour tea and you have four cups. And it takes like an hour and a half to do the tea ceremony. And it's really, it's really nice and relaxing. And you also you have a lot of time in the desert. It's just not quite as fast paced as uh, Atlanta. But this is one of the camps. And if you notice, after 40 or 50 years, they still haven't built it up. There's tons of tents and really kind of temporary concrete block buildings. And I remember asking them, why is it so undeveloped after all these years? And they're interesting. They speak Spanish, but they're Muslims. And I said, why is it so undeveloped after all these years? And they said, because we want to be able to leave this place at a moment's notice. As soon as we can go back, we're going to go back. We want, as soon as we leave, that the desert will come and blow away the entire memory that we even lived here. And one of the Western guys who was intent on serving some of the needs in that camp. He was a botanist and had developed some seeds that would actually grow in the Saharan. Amazing. Amazing. And when he got there, he went around to that family and he said, hey, can I help you build a garden in your yard? Or, well, it's not really a yard. It's more like just an area of sand. And many of them would say, no, we don't want to do that because if we start planting here, it means we're wanting to stay. If we build a garden here, it's like we're putting roots down and we do not want to stay. Their mindset is that they were in a place that they didn't want to be. They, they were in a bucket in the middle of the Sahara Desert. And so they didn't want to show any sign that would indicate we're going to make it work here. They're going to live as lightly as possible so they can leave as soon as they can. And everything comes grinding to a halt their culture, their communities. It's actually extremely difficult. When Jeremiah 
delivers God's word to the exiles in Babylon, the message is way different. No, plant, build, eat, marry, multiply. Beautify the bucket. Make plans to move it forward. And then the third thing, final thing that Jeremiah delivers to these people is that they ought to be ready for when God does bring them out of the bucket. You gotta make plans on a day-to-day basis, but there's still room to dream. And this is where that very famous verse that maybe you quoted with me, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have to you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans for a hope and a future. I mean, this verse is actually what lends this entire sermon series its title, a hope and a future. It may be one of the most frequently misused scriptures. You know, it's kind of common on a graduation card. You get a little note, Jeremiah 29, 11. It's great. God has plans for you, plans for a hope and a future. But, you know, when you're graduating high school or graduating college looking forward, it's not exactly like you're in the bucket. These words actually come to the people in exile. They come to the people in the bucket. Now, if you ever put it on a graduation card or you send it to a friend or anything like that, or if it happens to be your life verse, that's okay. I think it actually is more powerful when you realize this is not some simple health and wealth promise that everything you're going to do is going to be great because God has a plan for you and it's not going to harm you ever. No, when you realize that God is casting a vision, he's sharing his dream with these people so they have something to sustain them while they're in the bucket, you realize these verses actually pack a powerful punch. And the Lord says, I'll bring you back. I've not abandoned you. You're gonna return. And when you do, it's not going to be the same. And that's actually a really good thing because what they had done before got them into the bucket. If they went back and repeated everything that they had done before, they end up in the bucket. So God tells them, I have a dream for us. I have a dream for my people that that we will really know each other that you will hunger after my heart and, and you will find me and I will be found by you. And so this dream from God, it, it, it's calling this people toward the future. And in the next chapters, you'll see even Jeremiah prophesying about what that future looks like, the new covenant, where God works a fresh thing in people's hearts. So they don't have to go through this horrible experience quite the same way again. And it's going to take some time to get there. But it's amazing, even in Psalm 126, which is the song of the people returning from captivity, it says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of the captives from Zion, we were like those who dreamed. We could hardly believe it when God brought us back. It was the fulfillment of the dream that had lingered and simmered and smoldered for 70 years while we were away. And then that reality finally came to pass. 
And we talked a few minutes ago about fantasies that kind of ignore reality. The other thing is that fantasies, when you pursue a life of fantasy and escapism, the reality around you, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. You stay in the bucket and it is really a bummer. But when you live after these kind of dreams that come from God, see, God's, God's dreams, they don't leave you in a rotten reality. God's dreams become reality in the future. And that's what makes the struggle in the present meaningful. And I'm sure you could think of a dozen examples in your life when the existence of a powerful dream on the horizon made the struggle of the moment meaningful. Where your knowledge that there was something good beyond the bucket made living in the bucket at least manageable, with the help of God. And so these words, they're written to exiles. And I would say in a strange, unexpected way, this season of pandemic, for us, for many of us, uh, has caused us to experience a bit of that exile feel. Maybe some of us feel like we're in the bucket, maybe not in the bucket of Babylon, but maybe in the bucket of quarantine. Much of what we've relied on has not been accessible for months now. Even gathering in this room for large worship, many of our social interactions. I mean, even the school system, just this week, releasing Gwinnett County schedules and calendars. It's been up in the air and going back now, there's this different hybrid, in-person, online, some of both. How did Jeremiah's words that the people in the bucket make plans and dream God's dreams? How, how, how do those words intersect with us? What, what are the plans that you are making and engaging on a day-to-day basis to beautify the bucket. Now, not to grumble about the bucket, not to complain about the bucket, but, but the reality we're in, where so much changes upon us. What, what are you hearing from the Lord? What are the plans, the simple actions on a day-to-day basis that beautify the bucket and become a blessing to the people around you? And then secondly, what are the dreams What are the dreams beyond the bucket that God is putting in your heart about how God's going to move us forward as a community? And really this idea of being in exile is not just for followers of Jesus during the season of a pandemic. People have been talking for a while in our country, especially, about how perhaps the best analogy or image or model or framework or structure for followers of Jesus these days is to consider ourselves as exiles. That that maybe our culture and society has changed. Historians, they talk about these years that are called Christendom when the Governments in Europe and the United States were just closely intertwined with the church. 
And it was assumed that if you're born in these places, you're a Christian, and it's assumed there's gonna be Christian values in the culture. But for several hundred years now, that has sort of been fraying. And I suppose there is a reality that you could be born into a Christian home and then be exposed primarily to Christian schools and live your life in church and go up into Christian college and then graduate and work with Christian employees and and you might be living under the illusion that that Christendom reality where the culture is just Christian and it's all intertwined is still existing. But I think the vast majority of us know that's not the case anymore. I, I think we know that our culture does not assume that anyone born here is automatically Christian. Our culture more and more has only residual echoes of Christian values. Which means that as followers of Jesus, we probably have more in common with exiles than we do with other peoples in the scripture when they were at the center of the world, the center of attention. And so this passage becomes extremely important because if we do face the bucket and recognize in some ways we may be as followers of Jesus, a people who have much in common with exiles. If we recognize that, what do we do with it? Can we face the bucket? What does it look like on a day-to-day basis to live into our calling, simple practical ways to beautify the bucket and bless those around us? And then what does it look like to dream? Where's God taking us next? In some ways, that whole experiment of Christendom where the church and the state were so closely intertwined, oh man, it created a lot of problems. A lot of things fell apart. What's God's dream for us next? And I can tell you, even for our little community here in Snellville, our Grace family of churches, my heart is ignited with the possibility, the promise, the plans of God for us uh, that we step more into rootedness, that, that these challenging times make it no longer possible for us to be shallow in our faith, but actually demand that we become deep in the truth of God. It exposes some areas. Yeah, that's a bummer, but what if on the other side we're more rooted than we've ever been? And what if on the other side we, we are the first people to step up? We don't follow in issues of justice and inequality, but we're the people who who smell it first. We say, no, 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 no. God has a different plan for how this plays out. And so we step into those edges, those places, those renegade, because we're going against the predominant sort of drive of the society around us. We're saying, no, we're, we're following God into these places to serve and to bless and even lay down our lives sacrificially. And what if on the other side of this, we're just... We're just so real and authentic. And that reputation that Christians are kind of hypocritical or one way here and a different way here, they don't really like, what if that's all just peeled back and we're just the most real, sincere, authentic kinds of community around? I believe that's what God's heart is for us. And so I know this season's been disoriented and I know a lot of us feel like we're in the bucket and it's frustrating because we've been marinating in the bucket and the sauces are kind of bitter. What if God's doing something here? And it might take longer than we expect. Surely not 70 years. We're gonna be worshiping together in this room before 70 years, I'm pretty sure. But what if God's doing something amazing? What would it look like for us 
to emerge on the other side of this as the people of blessing, the people who speak blessing and not curse, the people who enact blessing, the people who display the heart of God to bless those all around. That's my prayer. That's my prayer. It's coming from Jeremiah. It comes from Jesus. It comes from the Apostle Paul. It's coming from the Holy Spirit right now. Let's pray. Lord, may we be this kind of people. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, you said, you blessed Adam and Eve, they'd be fruitful and multiply. You told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, you're gonna bless him so he'd be a blessing to all the people of the earth. Numbers chapter six, you gave your priests a blessing to speak over the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. It causes his face to shine on you, that his favor would rest on you. All through the scriptures. Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who experience all kinds of persecution. Lord, might we be the people, even when we find ourselves in the bucket, might we be the people who extend your blessing in our families, through the generations, and beyond into the cities and the towns and the neighborhoods where we live. In Jesus' name.